The reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16 and 18. And we start in chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go up from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and to the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And we resume in chapter 18, starting at verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. As we sit... Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to be attentive to your teaching as recorded in the Gospels and to allow your teaching to change us. Amen. We continue this morning our series on the teaching of Jesus, which we've been following at this service uh, on the first Sunday in the month uh, throughout the year. And we come to these two passages. Somebody has calculated that there are 500 Bible passages on the subject of prayer, 500 on the subject of faith, and 2,350 on the subject of money and possessions. I don't vouch for those numbers, but you get the message. And in Luke's Gospel, There's more teaching by Jesus on themes to do with money and possessions than any other subject. And that is the subject of Jesus' interaction with the rich ruler in Luke 18, which has just been read to us. So first of all, let's look at the questioner and the question. The questioner, we're told, is a ruler, and that means an official. Maybe a Roman official, maybe a Jewish official. Matthew tells us that he was young, so it's very unlikely that he was the ruler of the synagogue, but he was definitely a member of the ruling elites. And he addresses Jesus with the term good teacher, and that is pretty puzzling, because it's not a suitable form of address, even for an outstanding rabbi. And that for the reason which Jesus gives in verse 19, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. So I think probably good teacher was flattery with maybe a touch of irony. Jesus had no standing as a teacher in the eyes of the Jewish hierarchy, but perhaps the rich man recognized that Jesus taught very well. And his question in verse 18 is straightforward, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, first of all, what would he have meant by eternal life? Well, the immediate answer to that is that he probably meant uh, the sense of being admitted to the presence of God himself. But you'll notice that in verse 24, Jesus associates it with entering the kingdom of God. 
becoming one of God's people, being part of the restored and renewed covenant community, which of course is central to Jesus' teaching. And then in verse 26, Jesus' hearers associate it with being saved. That is, no longer under the judgment of God. And the context here is probably that some contemporary Jewish uh, view that all was not right with God's people. They were ruled by pagans rather than by a Davidic king. The worship at the temple in Jerusalem was corrupt rather than holy. And the Torah, God's law for his people, was widely flouted rather than obeyed. And so many people felt that God's people in the years in which Jesus was ministering were inviting God's judgment. Now let's go back to the question which was asked. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the first thing we have to say is that was a real question. It's not a theological debating point. It's a profound question about how to live one's life as one of God's people in a society that was deeply corrupted and compromised. What must I do? That is, how should I live to make me worthy to live in God's presence, to live under his kingly rule? And if I may digress, perhaps that's a question we all should ask ourselves more often. But let's look now at Jesus' response. And the first thing to note is that Jesus took the question very seriously. What shall I do? How shall I live? And he responds with the commandments that deal with our relationships with our neighbors. Let me remind you, verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Now, the point here is, of course, these are like headings for a summary of other parts of Jewish law dealing with that area of life. So, for example, do not commit adultery is simply shorthand for a range of laws about sexual relationships, marriage, and divorce. The man, of course, responds, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And we may think that's... Uh, rather strange, but actually it's not outlandish for an observant religious Jew to make this claim. It's not outlandish. There was no reason to think that this man was other than an upright man who meant what he said. And note, Jesus does not deny his claim of a lifetime of adherence to these tenets of the law, but it's not enough. Verses 22 and 23, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Did you notice that Jesus did not include the 10th commandment, do not covet, in his listing of the commandments. Nor did he preface the list with the earlier commandments to shun idolatry 
and worship God alone. So why was the man very sad? Because Jesus had pinpointed his Achilles heel, that area of his life which was not given over entirely to God. And the man knew it. Jesus follows up with a general principle. Verses 24 and 25. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Wealth and possessions can easily become an idol, the source of our security and our satisfaction in life, alienating us from God and excluding us from the life of his people in his kingdom. The analogy of the camel and the eye of the needle was intended to be both humorous and instantly memorable. But what did the bystanders think? Verse 26, those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus' hearers found this extremely difficult. Why? Not because they were personally rich, probably, but because what Jesus was saying seemed to run totally contrary to the view that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. After all, they could say there are strong Old Testament precedents. Abraham, we are told, was immensely wealthy. So was Jacob. In Deuteronomy 8, wealth is seen as a reward for obedience to the covenant when Israel was established in the promised land. But it was a promise that came with a warning. Not to become self-satisfied not to claim, in the words of Deuteronomy 8.17, my power and the strength of my hands have purchased this wealth for me, forgetting that all we have is God's provision, his gracious provision for us to use as he directs us. So how does Jesus challenge the rich man? Verse 22 again. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. First, sell everything and give to the poor. Concern for the poor and disadvantaged is a prominent theme in the Old Testament law. There are some people who are disadvantaged, widows, orphans, aliens, who are to be provided for from an additional tithe of all harvests in every third year. Other families are poor because they've lost their land, perhaps because of debt. And in that case, the kinsmen and the community have to act to buy back the land for them. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which was also read this morning, it's implicit that the rich man ends up in hell because he has callously and repeatedly ignored the plight of Lazarus 
sitting at his door in contravention or great swathes of the Old Testament law. So first, sell everything and give to the poor. But second, Jesus adds, and it's very important that the two come together, then come, follow me. You see, selling up and giving to the poor was a sign, a signal, that he really had changed the focus of his life. He was no longer worshipping the idol of wealth, but becoming a wholehearted disciple of Christ. Of course, he didn't. And the outcome of so doing, for us as for those first disciples, is in verse 28 to 30. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. We become part of Christ's new community, his kingdom. And that is a community that should share its life and its resources between its members, just as love and resources are shared in a human family. And so what of ourselves? How should we react to Jesus' uncompromising and radical challenge to the rich young man? It's very uncomfortable. I feel it. It's very uncomfortable. I don't think we can remove the sting by the suggestion that it was specific to this one person. Why then was it recorded in the gospel? Perhaps each one of us needs to have an encounter with Jesus like that of the rich man and ask ourselves these two questions. First, are we following Jesus wholeheartedly in all aspects of our lives? Or is there an area, or maybe areas, which are ring-fenced against him? Or where does our security lie? Now, it's not for all of us going to be wealth and possessions, but there are many people of my generation living in our houses in the Oxford area, secure in the value of our properties, secure in the generous pensions we have earned and the savings we have accumulated. But for other, others of us, it's not going to be money and possessions. After all, we don't have many. But there will be areas where Jesus is effectively shut out. Maybe it's personal prestige in our profession. Maybe it's cultural pursuits. Maybe it's academic progress, uh, prowess. Or maybe even something as good as absorption with family and grandchildren. Of course, spiritual life is still important. It's still an important aspect to our lives. But there is this tendency to compartmentalize, to keep Jesus in a separate box and not let him trouble these other aspects of our lives.
And then the second question is this, what, if anything, do we give to the disadvantaged? Jesus, in his dealings with the rich ruler, made this the touchstone of the man's commitment to God. But of course, it's not just giving money. It's giving time. It's giving compassion. It's giving hospitality. More generally, we need to ask, following the good example of the rich man, what shall I do? How should I live my life as a member of Jesus' community under his kingly rule? How should I signal my commitment to Jesus so that my neighbors can see it? In this passage, at least, Jesus, remember, is looking for actions and not just words. Let's pray. Sell everything and give to the poor. Then come follow me. Lord Jesus, help us to live for you and to be seen to live for you in every aspect of our lives. Amen.